You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. And I invite you to pick up a Bible. If you didn't bring your own, reach down in the seat in front of you and grab the one in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to have one, so we want you to take that one as our gift to you. We want everyone to have God's Word. I'm going to be reading from Psalm 40. I'm going to read verses 1 to 3. That's page 493 in the church Bible. Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3. This was written by David at a very low point in his life. He writes, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me, and he heard my cry for help. He brought me up from the desolate pit, out of the muddy clay, and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth and a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. There are defining moments in every person's life when things happen, good things and bad things, and decisions are made. And these decisions often change the course of a person's life and affect everything for the rest of it. I'm going to tell you my story. Why should I tell you my story? Well, one, because Jesus told me to in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Before Jesus went to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father, he said, you will be my witnesses. That's what I am. I'm just a witness, just a guy, just a regular guy who was broken and without hope that God intervened. And I want to tell you about that. I want to tell you about that because I want you to know the heart of God. What his heart is. There's a lot of misconceptions out there about who God is and what his heart is. But he has a heart that desires to save sinners. Because everyone's a sinner. Jesus said there is no one good. Not even one. But there is mercy and salvation. And I want to tell you about that. And I want you to know me. I'm the guy who gets up... uh, most Sundays and talks, and I wanted to know who's talking to you. I'm not just somebody who thinks things up here. God has radically changed my life, and I want to tell you about what he did. So let's pray. God, we come before you. We believe you are here in our presence, living inside some of our hearts. We believe you uh, created us for a purpose, that we are not just an evolutionary accident. We believe you are the one true God. And that you have a purpose for life. That you desire us to know you and to be drawn into relationship with you. I pray for everyone here uh, that our hearts would be open and we would ponder the things that I'm about to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was born in 1980 in London, Ontario. I was raised primarily by my mom. I was an only child. 
She worked hard to provide for us. My father was a, was a reckless young man, and, and he was always bringing hardship and, and challenges and trauma into the household, making my, my mom's life very difficult. So eventually, a few days after my fifth birthday, my dad decided that he was going to leave, and, and so he left my mom and I. I can still remember standing in the doorway between the garage and the house and watching him load his vehicle. It's one of those things that sticks in the, the mind of a little child. But it was my mom and I from five on, and she did a good job. And I, I wasn't very uh, smart I was actually pretty slow. I was really scrawny. Uh, I was literally the smallest in my class until grade eight, and then I started to grow a little. Uh, they used to call me bean sprout, uh, rooster, um, or carrot top, and they like to punch me in the guts sometimes, a few of the kids, uh, to add on to that insult. Uh, but I was scared. I was a scared kid. I was scared of other kids. I was scared of uh, the world, and I was scared of my father. And I really struggled as a student. Uh, I had to repeat a grade. And then uh, because I struggled so much, I had to leave my uh, school, the local school, and get on a bus. It was actually a short bus. Uh, I don't know why they made it a short bus, but it was. And I got on the short bus, and I had to go to another school for kids that were challenged uh, with learning disabilities and hard-to-handle kids. And so I went there. Uh, and, and I just, my mom got me a lot of help, but I just couldn't seem to get it together. I was really unsure, really not uh, confident in anything that I could do. And so when high school came, I, I naturally flocked to the other misfits. And they drew me into a lot of things that I hadn't experienced. F- fighting, and most of the time I lost. Um, and drugs, uh, and alcohol. And, and at first it was just to fit in. But then it became more of a numbing. I wanted to numb the growing sadness that I had inside of me because I didn't like myself very much and I was always sad for some reason. Then that led to this pit that I seemed to find myself in. And you know what? We, we often dig the pits of our own life, don't we? Yeah, people do things to us and it affects us, but we're often the ones digging our own pits by the choices that we're making. And I was digging a pit, and it seemed to get wider and it seemed to get deeper every day. And then I got arrested when I was 17. And I remember sitting in the detective's office, and, and I was stoned at the time. And, and there, the detective and his partner were questioning me, trying to get information about uh, the guys that I was involved with. And I can remember, like, I, I can remember very vividly because I was just thinking in myself as they're asking me questions. I was just thinking, how did I end up here? How did I go from being a little boy, you know, uh, fairly innocent with hopes and dreams, wanting to help my mummy, to being here? And I didn't know what to do. You know, I was so ashamed, and I knew I was breaking my mother's heart, uh, that I decided, you know what, I'm going to keep this from her, and I'm going to go to court and represent myself. Good plan. <laughs> Not. And so, uh, thankfully, they changed the court date, and the, and the uh, mailman brought the change of court date to my mom, and, and she saw it, and it just devastated her. And I, it was killing me that I was killing her, but I didn't really know what to do. Where was God? 
What about God? Well, to tell you the truth, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think I ever really met a real Christian. I mean, a real Christian, somebody who doesn't just say a bunch of things, but who lives it. Now that I know what a Christian is, or what God says is, somebody uh, who, who loves God and loves other people, somebody who's not perfect, but desires to follow their Lord. I was around religion. Actually, my father was an Anglican minister. And so that complicated things because I would go to his house on uh, once or twice a month on the weekend and, and I would see him drinking and there would be women constantly coming in and out and, and sometimes he would leave me when I was 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 uh, alone and he'd go drinking all night and partying and dancing and, and, and I can remember sometimes uh, being so scared I'd be hiding underneath the bed and then we'd go to church on Sunday. And it just didn't seem to make sense, even to a little kid. We'd be talking about these things, and yet his life was so different. And so I want to encourage you, if parents that are here, your kids are watching. They're not just watching what you say. They're watching how you live. And the things that we do or don't do reinforce to them whether this, is, this faith is real. So live well. Live authentically. And so I ran away to where many young men, broken young men, run. I ran away to the army, the infantry specifically. Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Now, we're not like the States. We don't have lots of different uh, units. We have three main infantry units. The RCR, the Van Dues, and then the Patricia's out west. And I was what you call, in army terms, a bag of hammers. Bag of hammers, it means not a very good soldier. That's what the instructors would call me. Emery, you're a bag of hammers. Emery, you're this. Emery, you're that. I can remember Sergeant Smith uh, running behind me in battle school, so it's six months of training. Uh, running behind me, I was at the back of the pack. When I joined, I was scrawny, no muscle on me, couldn't do any push-ups, couldn't do any chin-ups, couldn't run a kilometer, couldn't really learn. And so he's running behind me. And there's, it's about a 50% failure rate back then. And he says, Emery, you're no good. Look at you. You're pathetic, so on and so forth. You're done. You're never going to get through this. But you know what? When you got nothing else, and I was 20, and I had nothing else, dropped out at grade 10, no prospects. When you got nothing else, sometimes you rise to the occasion. And so I was desperate. And so I scrounged through, but I slowly developed perseverance. And I, and I'm, I, I believe uh, that God intends for us to have an amount of struggle in our lives. Because when we don't struggle, we become soft. And we don't, when we're not soft, we don't rise to the occasion. And when we're not struggling, we don't seek after God. So I made it through. And then I was stationed in uh, Edmonton, and I did what many empty, young, uh, lonely people do. I tried to look for happiness in another person. Maybe some of you have done that, right? Because we have this concept that if, you know, I'm, I'm broken and, and, and I'm not put together and I'm lonely, but if I find someone else, then I'll be happy. Oh, what a lie. Because two broken people don't make a whole person and so she had a six-month-year-old daughter. Her name was Estella. And the father was never in the picture. And so I became her father. And I didn't know how to be a father. I didn't know how to be much. But I tried. And then you remember September 11th, the day that changed everything. The world changed and it still hasn't changed back. 
But I deployed in 2003 as part of a close security team. Uh, so our job was to protect uh, officers that were operating throughout the Middle East. And so we traveled to different Middle Eastern countries and we were their protection and watched them at night and so on and so forth. Then I came back. And you know the pit I was living in, it was just growing deeper and deeper and deeper. It's, it's kind of like sin is kind of like quicksand. You know, you, you might think sin is only murder or, or sin is only, uh, you know, having, committing adultery. But the sin is rejecting God and saying, I can do it on my own. That's what sin is at its most basic form. And I was doing everything my way. And, and it's like quicksand sin is. The more you struggle in it, the deeper you go. Instead of stopping, I just kept immersing myself in it, and I went deeper and deeper and deeper. Then I deployed um, again in 2004, late 2004. This time it was to Kabul, uh, the capital city of Afghanistan. And our job was to keep the Taliban from controlling the place. So back then, we just controlled, NATO controlled the major cities, um, and the Taliban ruled the rural areas. And so that was our job. And uh, we tried the best that we could. And the Taliban were sneaking. And they'd sneak in and out and, and plant IEDs all over the place and hurt their own people. But I received a letter while I was over there. And that was what every soldier uh, worries about getting. It's called the Dear John letter. It was an email. Essentially said she was leaving me for another soldier. She was pregnant with my son at the time. And that when she got back, when I got back, she would be gone. And so I came back a few weeks later and I hit rock bottom. I was a mess. I was drinking every day. And I was what you call a high-functioning alcoholic. I could do my job. I could do mostly anything. But I would drink in the morning and drink at lunch and drink in the evening just to numb the hatred I had for myself, the pain of being a failure. I was a failure as a student. I was a failure as a, as a son. I was a failure as a partner. I was a failure as a father. And that weight is heavy. And so I drank and I wanted to die, but I didn't want to take my own life because that's what cowards did. And so another deployment came up. This was going to be, it was 2005, and they said, in 2006, we're going to hit the Taliban in a different way. We're going to go out to the rural areas, and we're going to hunt, either kill or capture the Taliban, because that was the only way they saw that democracy was going to come to that country. And so I signed up for it with the idea, with the desire, with the hope that I would actually die, that I would die a hero instead of living as a failure. And you know, that's a way some people can get where life is so uh, tragic that you want to die so that you don't hurt anyone else anymore. And I could see the destruction that I was causing in people's lives. And so I deployed over. Uh, My son was six months old. My daughter just turned five. And we went over. That was a picture from our first big firefight. And everything changed. It was a very different mission. We were fighting... Every other day, getting hit with IEDs, people started to die right away. Canadians, French, Americans, Afghans, men, women, and children. Every day, somebody was dying around us. And I was so amazed by the sheer evil that these people had. 
the Taliban that is, that they would inflict such horrible things, sort of evil that you can never even think of, things that in my mind will never leave, things that I could never even say to you that they were willing to do just to control power. And so we were a tight-knit group. There's them thinking, poking me while I was asleep. And we lived together, us 36, and we fought together, and we would spend the whole seven months together. But during that time, I was contemplating life. Because when you see evil, our evil is, you know, in prisons, and it's done behind lines, and it's blurred by media. But when the, the evil is there, and there's nothing holding it back, and it just ravages the innocent, you start to contemplate things, life. Like, if there is such, if people are capable of such evil, could there possibly be a God? Because I've been taught we just evolved from ooze. And I was like, if this is humanity, if this is the best evolution can give us, then I don't want any part of it. I would rather not live on this earth. But if there could possibly be a God who is good, I need to find out. And so I was contemplating these things. And uh, one day we did this raid on this compound. Um, and it was, that's, uh, it was this town where they were producing heroin. And back then, in 2006, most of the world's heroin came out of Afghanistan. And so we fought uh, and we killed about 40 Taliban. It took a couple hours to break through uh, their lines. And this is uh, pure heroin that's just been processed. We captured about $30 million at the time worth of heroin. But at the time, what struck me was this young man. And now we'd seen lots of death and killed lots of people. But it was this young man, 16, 17, maybe 15. And I'd watched him go down. And it was the look in his eyes that I'll never forget. The sheer horror in his eyes as he blankly stared out at me as I looked at him and stared at him after the battle was done. And behind him, where his soul should have been, there was nothing. And when I look into your eyes, I see a a life. I see your soul. It's that glimmer that you see in somebody's eyes. It's the eternal part of you, what makes you you. The part of you that will live on somewhere forever. And I was like, where did it go? Where did he go? And where am I going to go? I die. I was really starting to contemplate these things, right? Because we all think, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a pretty good person, right? According to whose standard? There's always better people and there's always worse people. But according to whose standard? Where did this guy go? Because I got to be better than him, but I'm a pretty bad person, I'm thinking in my mind. So I'd received a Bible from my father before I went over because he, I think he knew I was really barely hanging on and he was pretty concerned that he wasn't going to see me again. So he gave it to me. Now, I didn't read it at first. I had never read the Bible. But I was, in that time, halfway through the tour, I was like, I need to read it. I need to see if there's something in this. And so I, I read and came face to face with this Jesus who was very different than the religious uh, sort of traditional Jesus that I got little snippets of when I'd go to my dad's services or the social Jesus that I'd see in the media or on TV. He was like so compassionate. He had these prostitutes in his party. Uh, he had these, this assassin, ex-assassin. He had these mobster tax collectors and he had fishermen and, and he had doctors. Like, like this guy was 
willing to take anyone. And this guy claimed to be God. God was willing to take anyone and give them compassion and give them mercy and give them love and welcome them into his family. I was blown away by this because I had always thought Jesus was just a goody-goody who only invited other goody-goodies in. But he was also dead serious. He was, I was amazed at how he hammered the religious people. And he was like, I'm not interested in your half-hearted religion. I only want people who will follow after me because I am God and I am worthy of your lives. And so I was conflicted with this God of compassion and love and this God of seriousness and holiness. And I started praying to a God I didn't know. God, if you're real, I want to know you. I don't want religion. I want to know you. And I was praying like that over a few months. And then one day, one battle, God showed himself. Uh, the scene is we were over, uh, we were going into a village, and we were uh, going to, nobody had been in this village in Helmand uh, for four years. We knew the Taliban were there, but we didn't know to what uh, level. It was actually one of their command centers. Uh, satellites watching told us there was 200 plus Taliban in that village, at least, that they could see. We were 36 men going in there. And so we went in, um, and we couldn't bring our vehicles in, so we fanned out on foot, which meant we didn't have much support. All we had was what we were carrying. And there happened to be a U.S. journalist with us at the time. He was embedded with our platoon. He was there for three weeks. He captured that battle amongst many other battles, and he made it into a documentary. It's called The Bards of War. And uh, so I'm going to show you a three-minute clip because I want you to see the scene from that documentary. You'll see me. I'm the guy with no chin strap, with chin strap undone. As I go in, and so what happens is we're going in, we're single file, I'm fourth in the line, uh, the order of march, the cameraman Scott is behind me, and my three buddies, Scott, Chuck, and, uh, Chuck and Mark, we're a Bravo team, uh, they go over, and I'm about to go over the wall, and then all of a sudden, the trap was sprung, and the ambush started, and they had... Uh, set up a perfect ambush and their uh, plan was to attack us on all angles and cut us up into pieces and then overwhelm our positions. And so I'll pick it up um, and show you the scene and I'll tell you what happened after that. Sangin was one of those places we had no business being, but we were there and we all knew we were walking into a trap. You learn quickly in an ambush what brotherhood means and who the warriors are. Preparing for war is easy. The ambush will change you. Once the chaos starts, you are defined. Those moments last a lifetime. Faith becomes the anchor. It is the only armor that protects from the unexpected. Faith or fear. The Patricias rose to righteousness. Moving. We got friendlies to the left. Where's Chuck? Did you see Chuck? Right He's down in the valley. How far ahead of you? He's online with you right now. Oh! What's that? RPG. Do we have power? Limited. 
So as you saw what happened, Chuck and Mark and Tony went over, and then at that moment, the trap was sprung. And at that moment, we were getting attacked from all angles. So I looked up the hill, and Scott was right beside, behind me, as you saw, and I looked at my friends, and I thought, this is the point I'm going to die at, because there's no way we we're going to live through this. We'd been in many battles before that, but never have we been so perfectly surrounded as that and in the open in a field. And so I ran to them, but as I ran to them, RPGs go by me, uh, machine gun fire, uh, rifle fire, and then I slide in and you could see us moving along to try and get a position on uh, them. Scott was a brave journalist, uh, no weapon, he just had his camera. And there was some presence in that field, a supernatural presence. I don't claim to be one who, who God intervenes in, in supernaturally very often, but he does, and he did there, because we should have died at that range. We're talking here to the wall away. There's no reason why they should have been hitting in front of us and beside us and behind us and not making contact with the four of us. And so we fought, we uh, fanned out into a... Uh, straight line and then we attacked one of their positions because they had three angles on us and again they didn't hit us and we overwhelmed their position and that what you saw was the other group another group of four and the cameraman trying to get to us or trying to get behind us and yelling because they didn't know where we were we eventually linked back up after 10 or 15 minutes with that group of uh, other group of four and then about an hour later we fought our way to the rest of our platoon and it was later that night when we were in a making our little hide in the desert when I was thinking, why am I alive? Uh, we've, had many, we've had people die and be injured in, in much less complex situations than that. Why am I alive? What was that presence in the field? Because there was something there of power. And that's the first time I heard God's quiet voice. God doesn't speak loudly and audibly very often. 
It's usually quiet through his Holy Spirit. And that's the first time I heard the Holy Spirit essentially say, I am God and I am the one that saved you. And I knew there was a God. I wasn't his. I wasn't connected to him yet. I hadn't received his uh, salvation, which I had been reading about, but I knew he was real. And so then I came back. I came back to this place, to Canada. And you know, that's one of the hardest parts for soldiers coming back here. Because over there, life is so cheap. The wolves run the show. There they have so little. Here, everybody has so much, but they're so miserable. They're not happy. They're not content. They want nothing to do with God. And so there, you're fighting on a daily basis. Here, it's such a strange world. And so that's why we need to stop coming this Friday. And remember, because there's many soldiers that they maybe don't get killed over there, but they break when they come back here. And so I was here, and my mom met me and uh, with my dad. They both um, came to Edmonton and got my children, William, who was 13 months, and uh, Stella, who had just turned five, and they met me at the airport. And uh, <clears throat> my son didn't even know who I was. And they were with me for the day, and then they took the kids back to their moms, and then they left a few days later. And then I was left with my memories, my regrets, for the things that I did and wish I hadn't done, and for the things I didn't do and wished I had done. And then about a week later, a knock on the door, and it's the children's mother saying, I can't take care of them. You have to take care of them. And I was like, huh, how am I going to do this? Ten, uh, three weeks before, we were in one of the worst fights where we lost the most amount of Canadians, uh, the battle for the white schoolhouse. And, and now here I'm staring at a, at a one-year-old and a five-year-old, and I'm like, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And, and there was thoughts in my mind, I'll just crawl back into a bottle, like I used to, to numb the pain, that's what a lot of soldiers do. They just drink to numb, to forget for a little while. Or, or maybe I'll just become mean because the world's a mean place and I'll just be mean. But those weren't answers. And so when I went in and would look at the kids at night, those first couple of weeks, and I'd watch them sleeping so peacefully, I came to the conclusion, I can't do that. It's not their fault. It's not their fault. Their parents have made a mess of their lives. I can't fail them. And so I made one of those choices. It's one of those life-altering decisions. I made a choice to stop being the selfish jerk that I had been up until that point in my life, always putting myself first, always thinking about myself. You know, the Bible says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. Uh, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And I think, at 26 years old, I became a man on, uh, on uh, sep- September 6th for the first time. And I made that life-altering decision. And I started raising the two kids alone. And I would for six years. And it was hard. You know, raising two kids and being a soldier on your own, it's hard. You're up at 5 a.m. and you're a lot of the time asleep at 10. And it never ends. But you know what I found? That it was worth it. 
that they were worth it. I think God put those kids in my life to save me, to give me a reason to live and to fight. I learned putting the needs of others before myself is worth my life. And I was still inside a broken man, and I was still in that pit, and and I still drank. I was still indulging in sin. I was reading about God, but I wasn't ready to commit to him. So I took up a teaching position at a military base in Meaford. I moved from Edmonton with the kids because my mom was living in London still to be closer to family, and it's a more stable uh, lifestyle being an instructor. And then I was in my basement about a month after moving there, And I was watching pornography. It's that horrible thing that 70% of men and 30% of women are addicted to that destroys our minds and and corrupts and it's so evil. And yet I didn't know it was evil because I'd been watching it since I was nine. It was just something everyone did. But for the first time, the girl in the video, she looked through at the camera and in her eyes were such pain that it's like she looked right through into my heart and reefed on it. And I started to retch. For the first time, God's spirit was showing me just how evil I was, just how evil this was, that this was not only God's daughter, but someone's daughter. That like my six-year-old daughter wanted not long ago was just a little girl who wanted to be loved and wanted to be cared for and wanted to play with dolls, and now she was in hell. And what really got to me was I was a part of that hell. I was a part of making her life hell. And I, for, it's like God's spirit came and showed me just how holy he was. God is a holy God, and he can't allow that sin and for me to be in a relationship with him. And I knew through the conviction of the Holy Spirit and from what I've been reading in the Bible, if I didn't repent of my sin, if I didn't stop being the king of my life, the God of my life, I would spend eternity without him. Because God will not invite us into eternity where he is if we don't want him on this earth. Why would he? He can only allow those who have been forgiven, not those who are covered in sin. And I was covered in sin. And so I cried out to God, save me. Literally, I cried out in my basement alone. God, save me from this. And he did. And I started, the first thing I did, I had this desire, I need to smash all of the pornography I have. Throw it up, smash it, and never go near it again. And then, you know, it's not like when you're a Christian, you just change overnight. God is working on us. It's called sanctification. And so a couple months later, I'm like, I no longer really have the desire to get drunk. I don't want to numb anymore. And then a a little while later, I'm like, I don't even want to swear anymore. I don't want to punch people in the face anymore. And it's like this, the inward part of me started to change. God's character started to take up residence inside of me through his Holy Spirit. And that's what the Bible says this is. We've been so steeped in religion in our country for the last hundred years that we forget what Romans 5, 6 says. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And I got it for the first time that he died for me. And he died for you. And so I started to invest in this relationship because it's a relationship. And I just showed up at a church down the road. It was like Pentecostal church. I'm like, denominations? I don't know what they are. They're just like ice cream flavors. Just pick one. (laughs) And you know what these people with no background, a messy guy with a messy past with two kids, only single parent in that church, you know what they did? They loved me and embraced me. You know what the seniors did? They didn't just sit and stare at me or condemn me. They came and loved me. As many seniors have loved us in this church. And they, they invested in my children and they invite us over for dinner. And you know what the, the other couples, again, because I was the only single parent, you know what they did? They didn't exclude us. They invited us in. And sure, I was the only guy without a wife, but it didn't matter because I had this new family and I had Jesus. And I had a joy that I'd never had before and a hope for the future that I had never had before. And God taught me to forgive. What an amazing thing is when you can unload the hate and the anger that you have and forgive, to forgive my father, to forgive my ex, to forgive myself. And God started to do that in me. And he gave me a new song. And a new desire, so much so that a couple of years later, I felt like he's asking me to leave the army. And, and he's calling me to work for him. <laughs> but that was, seemed like a far-fetched fantasy because I didn't have my high school diploma. So I was like, went to some trustworthy, wise guys, and I was like, this is what I'm feeling. Can you pray about it and give me your honest answers? I went to them individually. They didn't know I would went to them, uh, the others. And they all prayed for a a month or so and came back and said, yeah, we feel it. They all did. And then so I was like, okay, God, (laughs) remember, I'm the guy who was in a special class who dropped out of grade 10. And God said, yeah, but I'm a supernatural God. And so I said, okay, I'll do my GED. If you can help me to learn and get my grade... uh, 12 diploma. I'll do it at night school after I'm done work and the kids go to bed. I'll get a babysitter and go do night school. And it took me a year to do it, but I did it through the power of God in me. I did it. And you know what? I left the army. I gave them my year's notice and and some told me I was irresponsible and some told me I was definitely not capable. And some told me, just stay another nine years and you'll have a full pension. But you know what? I didn't feel that was what God was calling me to. And I had read enough of the Bible to know that God wants us to step out in faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God since the one who draws near must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Was I qualified? Nope. Was I equipped? Definitely not. Was it an optimal circumstances? No, it wasn't. But we don't see in the Bible God calling people out when only the circumstances are perfect. We see him calling out men and women, just like you and I, and saying, follow after me, and I will make the way, and I will do what you can't do, and he did. And so we left, and the kids and I moved. 2011, after 11 years of the military, we moved down to Elmira so I could start a four-year degree. And you know what? I had been single the whole time, for five years at the time. And, and I wanted a wife, and I had committed uh, that God, once God had shown me that sex was not like what the culture said, that it was only for marriage, 
I committed, okay, God, this is like mind-blowing concepts, but I'm going to do things your way because your way has to be the best way. And so I committed uh, to celibacy. And I wanted a wife, but then eventually I figured, well, maybe he's not going to give me one. But God was moving things around. He's an amazing God. He's moving the pieces around even when we don't see it. And he happened to bring me to a place to rent a house across from a turkey farmer who happened to go to a church uh, in Elmira, not the church I went, was going to, uh, who knew a woman who had stayed single until she was 31. Uh, I don't know why she waited for me. She had plenty of other prospects, but God had her waiting and she'd walked with the Lord, not made a disgrace of her life and he brought us together and she was I fell for her the second uh, day that we were uh, our second date and we've been married now nine years this past September and she brought God brought together a broken family and I love her more than I did when we got married and it's a wonderful thing. And then a little while later, uh, a year later, little Levi, he brought it, God brought him into our lives and, and he solidified our family and, and unified it now together. And so we had a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old. I just finished school and uh, a newborn. And so we started to look for a church. And to tell you the truth, this is the last place I thought I'd be. There was other churches that I was hunting for. Other places, we could say. But God is a better chooser than I. And so God brought me here, and it was a church of 60 or 70 faithful people who welcomed me, and I showed up, and I'm like, what do I do? Can somebody tell me what to do now? And, and, and God brought a, a group of wonderful people alongside who were patient with me and ministered alongside me. And a little bit after the time, God has grown the church and we have become a a tight-knit family because God knows what we're capable of. He knows what we can handle. There's been challenges, yeah, but there's been so much good over my seven years here. And you know, children are such a blessing. If you're a parent and you still have children at home, Don't waste those moments. Spend every minute you can. William is going to be, he's 17, is his last year of school. I can remember back to that day when they came to my house and I committed to raising them like yesterday, 16 years ago. Where did the time go? But it's such a joy to be his father and to see him grow into a man. And every minute was worth it. But it doesn't always happen like that. Sometimes things don't work out the way you want them to work out. In 2017, Estella, adopted daughter, left and went back to Alberta. She was there one minute and then she was gone. She didn't come back. And it was heartbreaking. It was one of the hardest things we've ever had to go through. For 11 years, I'd raised her, and we'd invested in her, and Rebecca had taken her on as her mother, and the boys as her sister, and then she was gone. And some of you know that pain of a wayward child. And she'd broken contact with us. And there were some times I couldn't come into work. Like, I didn't want to come into work. I was trying to be strong at home, and I, was, I had to still be the pastor and come in and help people, but inside, I'm just barely hanging on. 
But I found out that Psalm 34, verse 18 is true. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who's crushed in spirit. And he did that. And he brought us through that year. There was a lot of Sunday nights or Saturday nights uh, that I'd be up all night. I was saying, God, I can't go in front of these people. I'm just barely hanging on. And God would give me enough grace to get up and to preach. And you know, people have asked me, would you go back and adopt her again? Knowing the way things turned out? And I say, yes, I would. Because it was the right thing to do and it was worth it. Loving her for those years, those 15 and a half years was worth it. And we don't always do things. We don't only do things hoping that they'll work out. We do things because they're right. And so I don't regret it. But God knows what we need. And a year later after that, he brought along Grace, Brenna Grace. She was a little gift. We had a, another daughter. And every day I get to pick her up and she says, shoulders! And I pick up her little body. You've seen her, she's so tiny. And put her on my shoulders. God heard my cry. And he turned to me. And he helped me. And he's made us a family. Not a perfect family, but a redeemed family. And I look back on my life and I stand in unbelief, really. I don't deserve what I have. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve the grace God has given me. I don't deserve a congregation like this. I should have been dead so many times. So much recklessness in my life. But God is a good and gracious God. I was so empty and so alone and so at pit. And then he pulled me out and he set my feet on solid rock and he gave me a new song and a new desire and a hope and a trust. I know, if there's one thing I know that is true, it's that God is real and that the God of the Bible is real and that Jesus saved me in every way a person can be saved. And that in order to be in a right relationship with him, you have to submit yourself to him humbly. For God rejects the proud and gives grace to the humble, he tells us. And I want everyone to know in here that that God is real and that he's waiting for you. I think he saved a fool like me to let you all know that he can save anyone, no matter what they've done no matter what you've done, no matter your background, no matter your history, no matter how good you think you are or how bad you think you are, he is willing and able. Just take him at his word. That's all he wants. Faith in its simplest form is to believe God is who he says he is and to do what he says because he's good. That's simple faith and that's all he's asking us to do. Follow him, he says. And so the question is, as we close, are you following him? I don't know everyone in this room. I don't know your backgrounds. Maybe you've gone to church. Maybe you haven't. But someday you're going to stand before God. And you're going to have to give an account of your life. And it isn't going to be according to your standards. It's going to be according to his standards. 
Because heaven is a place where perfection is. Sin can't be allowed in. But God so loved the world, he became a man. He gave his son to come to this earth and live amongst us to be sinless. He was sinless, even though tempted in every way. And he gave himself as a substitute for me and for you so that you don't have to pay for your own sins. And he is willing to offer anyone forgiveness. All he says is cry out to me. Humble yourself, receive my forgiveness and you will become one of his. And you don't have to worry about when you die. You don't have to worry about this life because you'll know God is walking with you. And so if you haven't committed to him, as I close in prayer and we get ready to do communion, I'm just gonna ask you, if you're serious, God doesn't care about the words cares about the heart he's looking at our hearts and all he wants to see is humility so if you want to you can repeat this prayer after me god i believe in you i believe that you died for me on the cross i believe you love me and will forgive me Lord, I admit that I am a sinner and I am in need of saving. Save me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.